Hi, this is Tammy. Soon we'll be taking an Australian summer break for the podcast. But before we do, do you know an amazing executive with a cause I should interview? Drop me a message on LinkedIn or contact me on my website, roundboxconsulting.com.au. I'm Tammy Vindunge, your host for Executive with a Cause. Today on the show, I welcome Bill Patrick, the CEO of the Outback Car Trek. Today, we're going to chat about the good, bad, and hard things about running a social enterprise. Bill, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Tammy. Thanks for the opportunity to um, take part. Matt Abood had um, provided that introduction. I know his family has been heavily involved in the Outback um, Trek for a number of years. And I, I was so fascinated by how this actually works that I said, I, I got to meet this guy. <laughs> so I'm glad he provided the introduction. Yeah, well, hopefully Matt hasn't told you everything we do when we're away, but I'm sure he's touched <laughs> on a lot of the good things. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we'll keep some secrets for those on the road as what stays yeah. on the trek, you know, should stay on the trek. But um, but hopefully we'll uncover a few of your um, insights in the show today. Yeah, good. For those people that are not familiar with the Outback Car Trek, can you please tell us more about it? Yeah, essentially the Outback Car Trek is a car rally for older model motor cars um, that are principally two-wheel drive cars um, that start and finish in a different location each year with the objective to get as far off the beaten track and the, and the main roads and byways as possible and touch as many people in small communities as we can in the outback over a one-week period. And the organisation is set up to actually raise funds for the Royal Flying Doctors, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. It um, came out of... Uh, of a group of husbands and wives sitting around in a lounge room back in 1990, thinking about a way that we could do more for um, for charity and give something back um, uh, to our country cousins. Um, specifically, we'd all spent some time in the bush and um, in our younger years, and we were looking for a, a way to do that. And um, Jill Knox, it was, came up with the idea that, well, why don't we approach the Royal Flying Doctor Service and see if they would let us raise some money for them. and and we did, and um, and the rest is history. Yeah. I'm not sure that everyone in our audience is actually familiar with the Royal Flying Doctors. Would you mind sharing a little bit more about what you know about that charity? Yeah, I'll pass on what I can. Um, for people in, in other geographies, um, uh, Australia's approximately the same size as mainland of North America, um, but only with a population of 25 million people. So very, very sparsely populated. Um, and the Royal Flying Doctor was founded in 1928 um, by the Reverend John Flynn, who um, brought uh, brought the concept of providing aeromedical services to be able to transport people to medical care um, that simply wouldn't live if they had to wait for a, a horse and cart or a buggy or a train to come and get them and take them back to the nearest doctor. And the RFDS now operates what we call is a 7.6 million square kilometre waiting room of, um, of quite a lot of empty space and services that with a, a fleet of um, some 70 aeroplanes and a staff of about 1,500 people operating through a number of bases um, throughout Australia. I don't think people understand how hard it is to get 
medical attention when you live out in these large farm areas, our remote areas that I know even with me moving to Australia nearly two decades ago now, um, when I learned that because properties are so far apart of how they actually do addresses was based on how many kilometers away from a a post box, a post office. And so it's, it's not... I guess, in everybody's um, mind, how far away some of these properties are from each other and why the Royal Flying Doctors are so important to help them with medical needs. Yeah, if you to put it in context maybe for some other people, if you had to duck next door to, to borrow a pint of milk, you'd have to have a fridge in your car because by, by the time you got home, the milk would be warm. It's not uncommon for neighbours to be 80 kilometres or 50 miles apart from house to house, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, let's talk about the Outback car track a little bit more because you just said a couple of things that are quite interesting. One, you're going in the middle of Australia where there's a lot of dirt roads and, and you know difficult terrain. And you just said this is for two-wheel drive vehicles, but also older model vehicles. What's considered an older model vehicle? Uh, well, 30 years old um, is the, the minimum time frame. And we've got some cars that have been built that come year after year after year that were built in the 1950s. Wow. So they're now 60-year-old, a couple of those cars. Um, and predominantly, we, we get approximately um, 100 cars each year on the event. And I would say 70% of those cars were built um, in the 70s or earlier. So they're now 40-something years old. And I can only imagine there must be some significant logistical challenges of doing that because just thinking about how rough the roads might be, these are not four-wheel drive vehicles, they're older cars. How do you manage to get 100 cars from one point to the other? Yeah, well, the cars obviously had a fair bit of mechanical work done to them so they can withstand the rigours of, of dirt road and remote road driving, and they're subject to some fairly stringent um, safety checks before we get on the road each year uh, and we've learned over a very long number of years uh, what mechanical aspects of the car may or may not fail and to work on those mechanical aspects and get them strengthened so there's an awful lot of preparation goes into making sure that that one week over which we cover about three and a half thousand kilometers on average um, four or five four, 550 kilometers a day for for seven days so we find that 51 weeks of preparation hopefully provides us with one week of trouble-free motoring or reasonably trouble-free motoring. So what attracts people to this particular event? Because obviously this is a, a very long drive. You have to spend a lot of money on these cars just to get them ready. And I'm sure there's additional expenses on top of that. How, what kind of people are attracted to participating in this type of an event? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Firstly, um, for Australians, it's not really a very long drive. <laughs> True that. <laughs> but, um, we're, we're certainly very accustomed to driving long distances, and I, I'm based in New South Wales, and it's not uncommon for it to be a three-and-a-half, four-hour drive between towns. So if you wanted to duck over to another town and see somebody or conduct a business meeting or whatever, you know, before we had Zoom and Microsoft Teams and things, it would be a, um, a three and a half, four hour drive to go and meet somebody. But but over the, over the course of a day, we do try and spend two or three hours driving in the morning and probably two hours driving in the afternoon. 
which gives us about four or 500 kilometres, depending on average speeds that we can conduct over the quality of the roads. Um, and the people that come along are absolutely from all walks of life, you know, from, um, from street sweepers to, to surgeons, to school teachers, to scientists, to, to whatever it can. I think the one common theme or a couple of common themes is the fact that people with a, um, with a thirst for adventure and people who um, have enjoyed in the past and want to continue to provide into the future the ability to have a, a positive outcome on people's lives who live in remote locations. So let's talk about that a little bit more because I was looking at your website and I noticed that you have these guiding principles about every event that you do. Would you mind talking a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah, we came up with the, they evolved over a period of time, of course, and we came up with the principles, foundations for the um, for the events some time ago. And, and based on the absolute fact that unless we put on good quality events that people enjoy coming back to, um, the events will eventually wither on the vine and our ability to do, donate millions of dollars to the Royal Flower Doctor Service would flounder. So point number one is make sure we have fun. Um, at the optimum amount of fun and make sure it's not at anybody else's expense, of course, but our own. Um, the second um, point is is, um, is twofold, really, is to, um, to have a strong social impact and a strong financial impact on the communities we visit um, by the introduction, what we call outside capital or outside money um, into these locations. Um, Another point, third principle, is to visit locations via roads and by ways that um, the average person simply wouldn't go there or, or wouldn't choose to take those tracks or take those roads. They would stay on the main highway and, and do the safe but boring stuff. Um, and we find that if we nail those first three things, we end up with a, a pretty exciting week and, and, and a very um, fun-filled week. Um, that enables people to become extremely generous in their support of the Flying Doctor to the tune where the Outback Car Trek now, on average, raises about $1.8 million each year for the service. Wow, that's significant. Now, when you're talking about fun, I can't help but notice that on LinkedIn, you actually call yourself the Chief Excitement Officer. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm also wearing another hat, the Chief Marketing Officer, which is called the Chief Mischief Officer. <laughs> Well, so there's a couple of different CEOs and CMOs wandering around the office at home. <laughs> well, I can imagine some of those stories that you have when you're on the on the trek is um, probably goes back to that as well. What were you doing before you became the CEO? Um, I probably had two different careers. I um, for ten or fifteen years prior to this, I was in the um, the IT industry, specifically software applications um, for some larger. Um, database vendors and, um, and accounting vendors and ran Asia Pacific um, for a number of years for those. And then prior to that, I was in the logistics industry where I'd worked for a couple of the larger transport operators and then kicked off my own business in 1988 and stayed with that for 10 years uh, before I moved on. And then when you got involved in the Outback Trek, were you one of the, the people involved at the very beginning? Uh, no, not at the very, very beginning. Um, uh, but certainly not that long afterwards. Um, there was a, a nucleus of about 10 or 15 people 
um, at the beginning, um, Stephen Knox and Jill Knox, um, if you like, founded the event with help from a lot of friends. Um, Stephen, um, as it does for all of us, time marched on and I took over from Stephen when he retired in 2008. And for what I want to go back to the principles again, because I think that some of the things that you talked about are quite important for organizations that are thinking about doing things for one specific cause, like the Royal Flying Doctors, but you're actually providing a social benefit and a community benefit as you're participating throughout this. You talked about the outside capital. Can you go into that in more detail when you go into these communities? Um, obviously, a lot of them haven't seen probably this many people come through their, their towns in a long time. Um, what exactly do you do to help that community? Yeah, well, well there's a number of different ways. And, um, and, and of course, some small towns are really quite small, like seven people, you know, eight people um, or 100 people. Um, and if anybody's familiar with, or if you're not familiar with the geography of Outback Australia, often a tiny town is simply a set of crossroads um, with maybe a general store on one corner. Um, you would know, Tammy, that there's always a pub on the other corner. That's never missing. Um, hopefully a service station where people can get some fuel and, and probably a tennis court or a church or a, or a hall on the other corner and a smattering of buildings. And, and essentially in those tiny, tiny locations, the, um, the people at the service station wait until enough people have come in and filled up with fuel um, so at lunchtime, they can afford to go over to the general store and buy the newspaper and, and maybe a soft drink or something. And when the guy in the general store sold enough newspapers and soft drinks, when he knocks off work that night, he's got enough money to slip over the pub and have a beer on the way home. So, so that money simply rotates around, around, around the town um, with the occasional grey nomad passing through to buy a tank of fuel and, and maybe a can of soup or something. But all of a sudden, come thundering down the highway, will be a um, hundred old cars with um, about three hundred people in them, or two hundred and seventy-five people in them. And it's obviously it's all set up months and a year beforehand. Um, but we will have the local people catering for us, so twelve hundred meals a day in the middle of nowhere. You know, breakfast, morning tea, lunch, and an evening meal. Um, and we pay you know, commercial rates for all of that. We're not out there asking people for a discount because we're raising money for charity. We're very, very happy. Um, kids' schools, we try very hard to work closely with the kids' schools or community groups, if there are schools. Um, and raffle tickets, it's not unusual for a school who might have an annual fundraising budget of, say, two or $3,000, um, to sell $5,000 worth of raffle tickets in one afternoon. That's incredible. And, and, and thing, things like that just, just flow on. Yeah. And so what about lodging? Uh, lodging is whatever's there, which there's commonly not a lot. Um, so a, a good week in inverted commas for, for, the, for the Outback Car Trek is probably two or three nights spent in larger towns where there's lots of services. Mechanical services are obviously important with the older cars, and that leads to motels and things. And then two or three or four nights where we will simply camp and swag yeah, under the stars, the, the five million star hotel. Yeah. Certainly a trek. And, and I can understand why you're saying these people have to have a sense of adventure to just enjoy it. Um, now, going into um, these smaller towns and just being there for one off, do you ever get feedback from them in terms of how that's impacted them? Oh, for sure. There's, there's um, you know, lifelong friendships have been made by a great many people 
within the Trek community and, and also with the towns and villages that we visit. Um, and we try and keep track of where the money goes to, what, what are the positive outcomes that um, so the communities enjoyed it. And it might be something seemingly simple to us who may live in the city or the large provincial centres, but it, it might simply be the ability to maybe a set of lights on a tennis court might be the, that community's fundraising mission for the year um, or running water and taps and whatever in a, um, in a pony club or in a, in a community event. Or it might be you know, laptops for kids at school. It might be a shade cloth um, for part of the playground or you know, for, the, for the little kindergarten kids to relax under um, while big brother and sister are maybe off to school or, or uh, homeschooling or school of the air or whatever. There's, there's a myriad of different ways that money has a positive impact. And I noticed over the years that you've actually added some additional events. So the Bright Smiles Ride and Drive 4x4 The Dock. Do you want to talk about those events as well? Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. So, so the, the Royal Flying Doctor Service does an awful lot more than land aeroplanes on dusty outback airstrips and and ferry people that it, um, um, it, it provides um, lots and lots of different services from breast cancer to mental health to all sorts of things. One, one of the things that's created a very strong program on over a number of years is their dental program. So providing dental services to um, people in remote locations. It wasn't unusual, we found um, you know, 10, 15 years ago for someone to travel eight hours each way just to be able to visit a dentist. So as a result, it didn't happen. Um, people ended up with poor oral hygiene and there are a lot of ramifications of, of that all the way down to blood diseases and, and uh, different issues with various health aspects. Um, so we started off, um, uh, or the RFDS started off a dental health program and now has a, around Australia a number of trucks uh, that are fully kitted out with dental chairs, X-ray machines, hygienists and dentists and dental assistants that have a roster of visiting different areas. And we started the Bright Smiles charity ride specifically to raise funds for the dental program, hence the name Bright Smiles. And we, we run that um, for a week in uh, the end of April each year, the shoulder season for us here in Australia between, um, uh, I guess, between the end of, um, end of autumn and winter um and uh raise funds there so that's the bright smiles rider uh, another event we run is um is drive for the dock or drive four by four the dock um recognizing that whilst not everybody has a 30 or 40 year old two-wheel drive car they want to take out into the bush a lot of people do have four-wheel drives and all-wheel drives um so we run a number of events each year that are dedicated to those people that um, may be a little bit more relaxed, um, certainly always motel rooms, um, but certainly still on dirt roads and small communities and touching people that uh, normally wouldn't get visited by too many people from the seaboard. Okay, so so you have three major events that you do every year. Let, let's talk logistically of, of some of the things you do operationally. Um, you are the CEO. How many staff do you have working for the organization? Oh, there's three of us. There's me, myself, and I. <laughs> that's, that's the three. Okay. Um, but I do get, a, do get a lot of help from family, from daughters and um, and my wife as well to um, check my spelling and um, and all those things. But essentially, it's it's... It's a full-time role for myself, and and over the period of a year, it's a bit lumpy. It's probably six or eight months worth of work over a year. 
And do you have additional help during the actual event? Most certainly. So during the Outback Car Trek, which is the larger event, um, we run a, a team of volunteer officials who volunteer their time and their motor vehicles to work as directed on the event. And that's normally about 30 people. Okay. Um, 28, 30, 32, depending on the year. And they do things from um, staff control points. So we found early in the piece that it was important to finish each day with the same number of people we started. <laughs> so, so we do run control and checkpoints um, morning, noon and, and night. And, and that's you know, manpower intensive or, or person intensive, um, as well as uh, we have a team of mechanics vehicles that follow um, follow the event. So there's normally three cars staffed by six people who may or may not be qualified mechanics, but they're certainly very good bush mechanics at getting all the little niggly things that can go wrong. Um, one of our larger telcos here in Australia, uh, Telstra, um, providers with a vehicle that's staffed with a, as a communications van or four-wheel drive. So they've got satellite technology um, and they also provide us with satellite phones for, uh, for free for the officials. Um, and and the, the, that, that vehicle is very important in the sense that, sure, we can upload our social media and, and talk to our kids each night or our grandkids each night. But more importantly, if we do have an issue which touch with them, happens very, very rarely. We're able to get in contact pretty quickly with anybody that needs it. And also we have two vehicles that um, one staffed by a doctor, uh, an RFDS doctor, and one staffed by an RFDS nurse that we um, put into the back of the field. So if there is anybody that has a health issue during the day, um, they're you know, fairly close to being able to, to have a medical professional help them out. And so are all these people volunteers? Yes, they are. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And since since you started, I could only imagine some of the challenges of, of doing this actual event. Um, things like just getting water. Yeah. Well, well, well there's, there's just so many things. Um, and, and I guess after years and years, I've been coming up on the event now for 20, you know, towards 30 years. Um, and a lot of them, I guess, I don't fully think about anymore. It's just like, you know, lacing up your boots when you put your boots on every morning is just something you naturally do. But, but you know, water, fuel is a perfect example. Um, food, of course. Um, it just, yeah, I, I actually, if I ever wrote them down, I'd probably fill a notebook with all the, the little things that we do that we just take for granted, yeah. And in, in terms of the challenges over time, since you have been doing this a long time, has anything changed during that period? Um, yeah, a couple of things have changed. Technologies, um, whilst the cars themselves aren't subject to technology, the way that we manage and control and run the event has changed. Um, and certainly just you know, speed of communications has been a huge improvement. Um, so if something's needed, if something has to get done uh, and whatever, either through the, some of the later UHF radio technology or sat phone technology, we can pretty quickly get in contact with the right person at the right time to get them to the right place. Um, it's not unheard of and it happens quite frequently where there might be a road closure. Again, for people not familiar with Outback Australia, we don't get a lot of rain, um, but they do get some. And if, if sometimes even the tiniest bit of rain on remote dirt roads that haven't seen rain maybe for 18 months makes them impassable instantly. 
Um, so we've got to reroute things. So getting people and getting the instructions across 100 vehicles and, and make sure that people still end up in the right place that evening um, for their accommodation and their meals and their fuel and whatever um, uh, requires a lot of footwork. But, it, it, and, but technology's helped us so much with that. Yeah, it's been great. Now, we have had quite a bit of rain on the, on the coast anyways yeah. over the last couple of years. Is yeah. that impacting your trek at all? Well, it has, um, and, and I, I guess um, we, we do what we can each year to make sure we've got solid plan Bs in place uh, and point of no returns is anticipating that, you know, Murphy's Law is always very close to being around the corner, um, but plan Bs aren't always possible. Um, sometimes towns are just where towns are and there aren't any alternatives on tarred roads or, or sealed roads. Um, and the last couple of years, uh, been especially challenging, but we've had the the ability to to know what you know plan for the plan for the worst and hope for the best style scenarios. Um, uh, and we we found a couple of years ago we got rained out after two days and we spent the entire week in rain after that. So we had to stay on the sealed roads, but we managed to find the tiny byways that haven't been troubled for a very long time by most people because of the big highways that have been put in in the last 20, 30 years. And we visited smaller towns that have been forgotten and, and people just had a ball. We'd go and visit little towns and buy a hamburger or buy a T-shirt or say good day to somebody and drop into a kid's school unannounced because our normal route had been changed. And it was just, you know, smiles and laughter all the way around. It was great. Right now, you said you're running it largely by yourself, and then you have a little bit of help from family. If, if you could make any changes to this particular organization that would change your staffing, what would you do? Um, I, I don't know. There's a lot I would change. I, I think, um, uh, and we, we're slowly doing it, we changed a little bit of the structure of the volunteer community that helps us um, because there's an awful lot of um, in, intellectual property wrapped up in the people that come along. Um, and we probably don't make as much advantage of that as we could. Um, but but really, um, part of the objective is to run as lean and mean as we possibly can. Every Basically, within reason, every dollar we spend is a dollar that we don't donate to charity. So um, we're pretty fine with that. Um, from, from my role point of view, there's probably four different weeks of the year that's pretty intense and, and they are what we call survey runs. So we go out and we reconnoitre um, where we're going to, you know, we work out what we think the route will be on paper. Um, then we go out and find out that um, we didn't quite get it right on paper. We've got to change this and change that. They're fairly long days. Um, and we have, uh, I have one or two people come with me each time to help me out on those. Um, they're, they're sort of pretty um, intense and days or weeks so there's a couple of weeks of that the event itself is for me anyway is just a, a 12 14 16 hour day every day for eight days um, but I'm not really sure how I can offload a lot of what we do unless we had a hierarchical structure throughout the year which we choose not to do because of the downside of of cost and and whatever else I think event managers in general will tell you that that's just the life of running events, <laughs> that when you, you have yeah. an event on, it's going to be some long days. Yeah, I'm curious simple. to go back to what you were talking about for intellectual property. Um, you were saying that we don't take advantage of that. What did you mean by that? 
Yeah, well, I, I think within the volunteers, so we've got a, a community of about 30 or 35 volunteers, and, and we normally use about 30, 32 each year. Um, and there's probably a few disciplines in there that uh, I operate myself, but if you can break them down, so we've got things like um, like f f the catering side of things. So a couple of years ago, Mike Brown, who comes with me now each year and for the last 10 years, he's been generously donating weeks and weeks, if not months of his time each year to help me out on the road and on the event, has a background in food and beverage with major hotels. So Mike now takes over an awful lot of the responsibility for organising the food and beverage along the way, which frees me up quite a bit to focus on other things. Um, there's this new beast on the block in the last couple of years called social media um, that I've tried to get my head around, but I'm a, a cranky old man that doesn't fully understand it. So <laughs> I'm now talking to one of the younger um, volunteers who is progressively starting to take over the social media side of things. And again, that A gives me a bit of bandwidth that I didn't have before, but B also um, put somebody onto that task who's got the right skill sets rather than me trying to acquire a set of skill sets that I'll probably never be good at. Um, so, so pretty sort of textbook sort of stuff. Um, but as you know, when you're in, in the swamp, um, up to your armpits, um, you often forget that you should be trying to drain the swamp before the alligators get you. Um, that's one of the big battles, isn't it? Work, work on the business, not in the business. Yeah, yeah you would know, too, from your own experience. And, and I think most small organizations have that challenge as well. Um, given the, the experience you've had both in and out of this organization, I imagine that you have done some things that, that are probably allowing you to work by yourself most of the year. Are there any um, tips that you would give other small charities or not-for-profits or social enterprises to make their jobs easier if they're trying to do so much themselves? Yeah, well, I think one of the things is a good, strong network of people you can pick up the phone to and ask advice from and, and a mentoring program, which I have not ever um, submitted myself to any sort of mentoring, I suppose, for 30 or 40 years, but I have very strongly now in the last 15 years. Um, and often just mostly in a semi-formal way. It's, it's formalised, but it's not, um, it's not fully formal. Um, there's that, and there's then just a, a, a good group of family and friends where say, you can pick up the phone or go and grab a cup of coffee or, or just go out and let off a bit of steam every now and then when you're getting frustrated, maybe by your own inability or, or by other, you know, what's important to me isn't always important to somebody else. Um, and people in remote locations operate on different time frames sometimes as well, which I fully respect. Um, so there's all those little niggly things that if you've got a good support group around you, um, can, can massage you and get you over the other side. And I wonder too, Bill, given that you're a one-man operation right now, do you ever think about your succession planning? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm getting to an age now that um, sometime the next few years, I'll be 70 soon. So oh. um, I, I've started to think and it's about time we started to look for a, a safe pair of hands to um, pass the legacy across to. Um, and that's not formalised in my head yet and I'm not in any hurry to do it, but I recognise it needs to be done and it might be something that might take two or three or four years to pass across. So it's something that I've um, put up on, on the whiteboard in the back of the office to, um, to start thinking about, yeah. 
Well, I'm sure the Royal Flying Doctors are so grateful for all the money that your company's been able to, to raise for them. In fact, how much have you raised over the last few years? Uh, well, the last 10 years, we've raised um, nearly 20 million. Wow. Well, it's the last 13 years, I think it is, we've raised a bit over 20 million. But over the 30 years, uh, 30 years, we've raised 33 million. Yeah. A significant income stream for them, I'm sure. And, yeah. you know, yeah. um, I'm sure that they even budget for it every year, knowing that they have this amazing organization that's helping them every year. So that, yeah, that's no, the, the RFDS are wonderful people to work with. Um, they're, they're certainly the world's preeminent um, aeromedical um, or remote location medical providers. Um, you know, Australia's most trusted charity, I think, now for seven consecutive years. Um, and an absolute treasure and a pleasure to work with, yeah. Do you have any other advice that you'd like to share with others? Well, I'm not sure that I think I'd be in a position to provide advice to too many people. <laughs> oh, Bill, you've been doing this for a long time and it's been a very successfully run event for a very long time i'm sure you have something to share yeah well i'm not sure i just we just do what we do every day just a boy doing a job i think that was val kilmer in one of his movies but um yeah we just come to work and do our job to the best of our ability we always find ourselves coming up short and try and do a bit better next year but um now i think um uh, make sure you've got a good set of core values um make sure you've got a strong social and family network um, for the time, because times do get tough sometimes and it's pretty lonely um, sometimes. And um, keeping constant contact with your um, constituency. Yeah. Bill, thank you so much for sharing what the Outback Car Trek does. The work that you guys do for the Royal Flying Doctors, not just yourself, but obviously a whole lot of volunteers and participants in these events every year. Um, I'm, there's a lot of people in various communities that wouldn't be able to get the help otherwise. And I think for those of us who live in the city, we, we underestimate how vital that, that service is. So thank you for that work that you do. If people want to know more about um, the events that you're involved with, what's the best uh, location or website we should send them to? Well, the, we run a website for each of the events, but the lead website is outbackcartrek.com.au. Uh, and you'll find links on there to either the motorcycle event or the four-wheel drive event. And also through the front page of that about the actual Outback Car Trek itself and, and also the work that um, we helped the Royal Flying Doctor achieve in remote locations. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. It was really great to learn all about your, your company that does so much for the Royal Flying Doctors and, and just knowing what your volunteers and participants do every year. Okay, thanks, Tammy. Thanks for the opportunity to share some thoughts. Hi, this is Tammy again. When I'm not doing podcasts, I'm helping not-for-profits with IT decisions. The question for this week's IT in Plain English segment is, what is a no-code platform? A no-code, or sometimes called a low-code platform, is essentially a tool that allows non-technical people to create apps and forms without knowing how to write code. Traditionally, any software development required a programmer or engineer to create it using programming languages like Java or Python. 
Today, there's a whole group of no-code options for the average person using drag-and-drop fields, as well as the kind of formulas you might use in Excel. Popular tools include Bubble and AppyPy. Microsoft also has their own version called Power Apps. Now, it's important to know that these tools are not built to help you sell something on Apple or Google. Instead, they're really for internal uses like reducing process inefficiencies through automations. You could also use them to test ideas or prototypes. But just a bit of warning, despite their pro-claim, no-code claims, it's all relative. Using one of their tools is easy if you're a software engineer. However, if you're not, you may find these tools are not as easy to use as their marketing claims, depending on your own skills. So there you have it in plain English. If you have an IT question you want answered, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a message. I just might answer it on the show. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave me a review. To all of you executives with a cause, the world is definitely a better place because of you. Thank you for what you and your teams do every day.